You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I'm going to turn to Psalm 74 and uh, we'll read uh, as uh, we go along. Um, I listened to a podcast that was produced by two of our own uh, young men, uh, Robbie and Mark, and uh, it was um, apparently hilarious and very interesting. but I didn't understand virtually a word of it, or at least a sentence of it. I understood the words, they just didn't make sense. Because, and it wasn't because they're from Northern Ireland or anything like that. It was because it was a, pod, a 24-minute podcast about American football by two Ulster boys. I didn't, Scott's smiling. Have you heard it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just didn't make any sense to me. And why didn't it make any sense to me? Because I have no interest in American football. And I apologize, Scott and the Stadelskis and whoever else is interested in American football. There are a lot of Scots who are interested in American football. I don't understand it, and one day I will. But I have no interest in it, and so therefore it wasn't... um, I mean, I knew the guys, and they seemed to know what they were talking about, but it didn't make any sense to me. I think one of the difficulties we've got when we want to bring God's Word to people is lots of people just have no interest in Jesus, And therefore, no matter how you try and make it interesting, because they're not interested in the main subject, then it's very, very difficult. And we need to pray in this year that more and more people would become curious, would want to find out what God's Word has to say. And the psalm that we're going to look at is a a difficult psalm at one level, but it's also, I think it's a wonderful psalm. It's a psalm of Asaph, not of David one of the few that are, and it is a song that remembers what's happened in the past, almost like remembering the year goes by and looking to the future. We know, we know exactly the year that is being spoken of. It's the year 587 BC, and I'll tell you why we know that in a moment. Uh, but I think this applies to 2016, and those of you who are great at arithmetic will be able to work out how many years ago that was. But let me say also this as something I hope that will encourage you as we enter into a new year, that we can have a great deal of concerns about many things and worries about many things. But listen to what uh, John Newton says in a letter I read this week. He said, when things come to be weighed in the balance of the sanctuary, in other words, he's saying when we think things in the light of what we hear from God... The lunatics in Bedlam, some of whom glory in their straw or their chains as marks of splendor or ensigns of royalty, have as much reason on their side as any persons upon earth who glory in themselves. So there are people, and we may be tempted to do this, to boast about ourselves, to glory in ourselves, what we have, what we've achieved, what we hope to have, what we hope to achieve. And Newton correctly points out, That's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense. This alone, says he, is the proper ground of glory and joy. If we know the Lord, then all is safe at present and all will be happy forever. Then whatever changes may affect our temporal concerns 
our best interests and hopes are secured beyond the reach of change. I love that phrase, that your interests are secured beyond the reach of change. Whatever happens, if you're in Christ, your best hopes and interests are secured beyond the reach of change. And whatever we may lose or suffer during this little span of time will be completely compensated in that glorious state of eternity, which is just at hand. So as we reflect upon this psalm, uh, let's bear Newton's words in mind that for the Christian, it's an absolute win-win whatever happens. Our circumstances or our, our hopes and our joys are not dependent upon our circumstances and how they change. But uh, we rely on the Lord, and, and this psalm, I think, reflects that. Let's read uh, verses 1 to 11. O oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left, and none of us know how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. The story here, the background to this is from Second Kings chapters 24 and 25, which I'm sure you all know off by heart, where Jehoiakim was king. And Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon, took him captive to Babylon, removed the treasure, cut up the gold, smashed up the temple. And Zedekiah then became king. It says in Second Kings that he uh, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 20 of chapter 24, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Jerusalem was besieged for two years. There was a severe famine. And when all the food was gone, the city was captured. Second Kings 25.13 says, They broke up the bronze pillars. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord. And they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. And then we lead just a couple of verses later. The people fled to Egypt. And this psalm is about that. It's about the distress. And notice the distress. I... Um, sometimes wonder if we genuinely want to see what's happened to God's church in this land, in Scotland today. Because 
I, I often think the church doesn't want to. I think the church often lives under an illusion. We don't see what's happening. We, we, we don't want to be negative, and so we try and affirm, and we try and say everything's fine. And also, perhaps, we don't want to see because it's so painful. If you're concerned for the glory of God, it is painful to watch. And that's what the psalmist does. Asaph, these are your people, he says. They're those you purchased. They're those you redeemed. And in the darkness, it doesn't seem to matter. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. That's not what's happening here. The redeemed of the Lord are being taken away. And to be honest, there are many people who are Christians and who are believing Christians, who are born-again Christians, and sometimes the temptation to feel is, what? what is going on? And almost, what is the point? You rescued us. Israel's history is summarized. Uh, I kind of like this summary. If any of you have ever done a history uh, course or history degree, you've got to write an essay. Um, you're asked to write the history of Israel. The psalmist does it in effect in, in two ways. He says, you rescued us from Egypt and you dwelt amongst us. That's what it was like. Very, it's very succinct. But he's saying, that's what you did. We knew your presence, but now that all seems gone. I was in a church once uh, where one of the elders said to me, I remember the days when, and you always dread that, you know, I remember the days when. But he was right. We were meeting about 30 people, and he remembered when the hill up to the church was black with people coming to church, four or 500 people. I remember the days when there was renewal and revival in Dundee. Um, none of you, I think, here are old enough for this one. Not even the very oldest, I don't think. In the 1920s, in the Caird Hall, uh, Joke Troop was there, and there were, Mr. Ellis is nodding his head, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't there. <laughs> Not quite. Um, and can you believe this? In the Caird Hall, I mean, holds 2,000 plus. It was full every night with people coming to hear the word of the Lord. I remember the days when you did this. And some of us in our own experience, in our own life, and we just feel so spiritually dry. And even within, in, sometimes often within churches, it all seems gone. Verse 4, your enemies are marching in the place where you met with us. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. This is the temple. This is where you met with us. And now look what they're doing. We heard your word. We experienced your presence. And in Lamentations 2, which also refers to this, the Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of our palaces into the hands of the enemy. They've raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Their bars he has broken and destroyed. Her kings and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. Instead of the voice of God, there is the roaring of the enemy. How traumatic that must have been to God's people, that where they had met with God, where they had experienced so much of his presence, 
the enemy are there, and look what they're doing. They're, they're smashing it up. They smashed all the carved paneling. And instead of the voice of God, there's the roaring of the enemy. Now, I was thinking of that. Believe it or not, this has got something to do with the BBC. Uh, it's not the BBC's fault uh, that this happened, because obviously they weren't around then. But I just wonder if you know a little bit about the history of the BBC. Its motto was, nations shall speak peace unto nation, taken from Micah and Isaiah. The founder of the BBC saw it as a means to communicate the Christian faith. Its motto changed and became, I was going to say nobody here knows Latin, but that's not true, so I'll have to be careful, quasinque, which was whatsoever. And that's from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And that motto is still in the entrance hall of Broadcasting House. It's, uh, um, and there's a, another one there in Latin, which is a shame they won't translate it and let people see what the BBC is supposed to be. This temple of the arts and muses is dedicated to Almighty God by the first governors of Broadcasting House in the year 1931, Sir John Reith being Director General. It is their prayer that good seed sown may bring forth a good harvest, that all things hostile to peace or purity may be banished from this house, and that the people inclining their ear to whatsoever things are beautiful and honest and of good report may tread the path of wisdom and uprightness. I watched the Graham Norton show a couple of nights ago, produced by the BBC. It is the antithesis of what the BBC is supposed to be, where the voice of God was once heard, now the voice of his enemies. And so the people lament. Verse 6, the destruction. They smashed up the artwork. They smashed up the carved paneling. It's as though the writer is watching this and he's, he's saying, please, not the panels. Don't touch the panels. They couldn't care. They just come in and they just... It, it's, it's a, as one writer describes it, a furious, destructive energy. They burned every meeting place, verse 8, where God was worshipped. Not just the temple. Some people think that this was referring to synagogues, but given the time, it's unlikely that there were synagogues then at all. I think it's just really referring to any place where people met to worship God, to pray, as well as the temple. And in our culture and in our world, last year... Uh, we know that there was severe persecution of Christians. Some reckon that one Christian every six minutes was, was killed for their faith. In China, last year, many hundreds of church meeting places have been destroyed. Likewise, in Iraq and in Syria. Look at, look at the, the phrasing in verse 8. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. In our culture... I mean, there are people who will say, destroy the church. But there are other people who say fine words, but in their hearts, and the Lord knows, they are delighted if the churches are crushed and destroyed. And all this is going on, and then verse 9 hits you. We are given no signs from God. This is what they're doing. They're smashing up your temple. Where your voice was heard, they're speaking their blasphemies. 
and you're doing nothing. You're saying nothing. There's no action. There's no words. There's no signs nor symbols which speak of God. The prophets are quiet. And I look at our culture and our situation, and I want to say more or less the same thing. There's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord in our land. There's a film that's coming out this week by Martin Corsese uh, called Silence. And I haven't seen it yet, but I do intend to go and see it. Uh, I love the idea of it. It's about Christians persecuted in Japan in the Middle Ages. Uh, in fact, probably a bit later in the Middle Ages. And uh, it's describing the tremendous cruelty they had to endure. And two priests who are asking the question. It's called silence because it's saying, why is God silent? Why does God not speak? Because that surely is the worst thing. There can be days of darkness. Think of Jesus on the cross. At noon, darkness came over the whole land, Mark 15, 33, until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what the psalmist is asking. Why have you forsaken us? There's darkness. My prayer for you is that you will experience days of light uh, all this year. But I suspect that you will experience days of darkness as well. And sometimes a darkness that you have never experienced before. And that is hard to comprehend and hard to explain and hard to bear. And in the darkness... What do we do? We're not, you're, we're not told, by the way, don't ask questions. It's actually faith that causes the questions because he's praying to God. He's asking about God's congregation, God's church. He's asking, is this forever? We're not told in the darkness to be silent. Some people say, well, doesn't God already know? Why would we tell him in prayer? Uh, I, I like the old story. I don't know where it's from, but of somebody praying, uh, Lord, Doubtless you have seen in the papers, as though God needed to read the papers or have BBC or CNN or whatever to get the news. But prayer is not us coming to God and telling him things he does not know. Prayer is when God, our Redeemer, comes to us and says, tell me about it. It's like you're a parent and you have a child and you may know what's going on but you still want them to talk to you. It is God the Redeemer saying, tell me. We sang this morning, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. We need to tell the Lord in the darkness and we need to tell the Lord all our doubts and fears. Because again, in the darkness, we're not told, shut it out from your mind, your mind, don't think about it. Look what verse 3 says. Just go back to that. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. It's a fascinating verse. Because it's not saying, God, rebuild the temple and get the enemy out of here and sort it all out and fix it out. It's, it's saying, first of all, God, please, we're in a mess. Can you come to us in our mess? And as we'll see, we're told to pray and we're to plead 
God's name and glory. Or verse 11, there's a really bold prayer there. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them? Now, I don't think this is the kind of flippant thing that people might think of. Um, you know, you might say to one of your children, get your hands out your pockets and get on with it. But it's really saying, Lord, why are you silent? Why is your hand in your garment? Why is your hand not working? And I, I believe Scripture gives us enormous precedent for that kind of bold prayer, which does not come from doubt, but actually it comes from a fierce sense of the glory of God and how that is being diminished or appears to be diminished in a world which is rejecting him. It's very, very bold prayer. Now, in that, let's go on to verse 12. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. In those four verses, he's saying this, you are God the king, you are God the savior, you are God the conqueror, you are God the creator. Verse 12, but God, as so many times in scripture, we are presented with a situation, we're presented with a difficulty, and then it's but God. Ephesians 2, for example, verse 4, but because of God's great love for us, he who is rich in mercy... And you'll see what the psalmist is, is doing here. In, in these few verses, he uses the word you of God seven times. And it's emphatic. You, God, did this. You did that. The first four, he uses them to affirm his power over every opposing force. You destroyed. You dealt with it. And the last three, it's his sovereignty over the order of the world. You establish the sun and moon. You set the boundaries of the earth. Because the experience of the Lord's people says different. Evil appears to be triumphant. The devil seems to be winning. And there seems to be chaos and disorder in the world. Now, this is so counterintuitive to our culture and so counterintuitive to the way that we are all being brought up and the way that we are all influenced. Here, we are told that we are to challenge experience with truth, not challenge truth with experience. I find it beyond ironic, even amusing, that the word, the Oxford English Dictionary word for 2016 was post-truth. Because people who have been telling us for decades there isn't such a thing as truth are now complaining that it's post-truth. And I want to go and say, what do you mean by truth? Where do you get that from? Because we've been saying that, at least if, if you've been faithful to Scripture, you're saying, this is my experience, but I'm going to judge my experience by the truth, not judge the truth by my experience. And in your darkest hour, you are not called upon to deny your feelings at all, 
But what you are called upon is not to make your feelings the judge. That's why it's darkness. We stand in the darkness, if you like, if, if you like and, and, and we look at the light. He is the king. That's what saying. You, but God is my king from long ago. If I showed you a photo of political leaders at the beginning of 2016, there's a very... Um, I've, I've actually got it stuck on my wall just now because it's, it's just such a striking photo. It has Merkel and Cameron and Obama and the Italian guy Renzi and uh, Hollande. And these were five of the world's great leaders at the beginning of 2016. Four of them are gone. You took that photo today, the only one left would be Merkel. How quickly things can change. The heathen powers have come into the temple and they've disrupted the temple and they've smashed up the temple and they've tried to bring chaos and disorder into God's beauty and order. But that's nothing to what God did because God brought order out of chaos in Genesis 1. That's why in verse 15 it talks about you um, you who opened up springs and streams, you dried up the ever-flowing rivers. It's saying that God was able to bring, um, turn the wilderness into a place of plenty. Verses 16 and 17 talks about God setting the boundaries. Are you concerned about climate change? You should be. It's real. There are people who will dispute, and I'm not going to enter into the argument about whether it's primarily man-made or whether it's uh, uh, otherwise, whether it's because of natural conditions or sunspots or whatever. People... Ask, what can we do about it? And here I think the enormous mistake is this, to act as though we were in charge. We, we're not. That doesn't mean a kind of fatalism. It doesn't mean you shrug your shoulders and say, I can't do anything to care for the environment. It doesn't mean we should just go, oh, it's all going to be destroyed anyway. But it does mean we recognize both that God sets the boundaries And God calls us to be stewards of his creation. A creation, by the way, which is groaning as it waits for God's children to be revealed, waiting for the renewal. Again, I don't understand how you can be a logical, non-Christian. I'll tell you why. And and be like a human being and real and human and everything. Uh, And let me just explain that before anyone gets offended. Or you pass it on in such a way that it would be offensive. Because if I'm looking at the world logically and leaving God out of the equation, I know that the world's going to be destroyed, and I know that we're probably going to destroy it. And we could be hit by a meteorite at any time, or, you know, we're just going to... I mean, there's basically no hope and no future. There's just me living for a short period of time before I catch some illness or get hit by a car or, you know, killed by a terrorist or whatever, and that's it. And then nobody will remember, and I won't remember anything, and the whole thing's going to be... Uh, destroyed anyway. I, I remember I had the, I love atlases and I had as a child massive big Reader's Digest atlas and it was like to be an atlas of everything in the world. I remember reading it as a kind of nine, ten year old. How weird to read atlases but I did. <laughs> and I remember reading it and I remember on one page it said um, the, the universe came basically from an infinite explosion and so on and the universe is going to die And it's either going to die by all shriveling up or by all expanding. 
but whatever happens, it's doomed. And I thought, that's great. You know, why? You know, I just, and people like Richard Dawkins would say, well, just suck it up. That's just the way it is. But the Bible says, no, that's not the way it is. God sets the boundaries. And God calls us to be stewards of his creation. Here's a thought for you. If you were a, a tweeter, this is like a twit thought, because it's 140 characters. The creating and recreating power of God is infinitely greater than all the destructive forces in your life. That's what bothered me about the Graham Norton show. Because there was Carrie Fisher who died two weeks later. Obviously in some distress. Obviously not a well person. And all they talked about was trivia. They had nothing. Nothing. There were destructive forces in her life. And no way. No way that the force could be with her and cure her or help her. But we as Christians know that the creating and recreating power of God is infinitely greater than all the destructive forces we face. And then just finally, verse 18. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord. We're back to prayer. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. Now, what's interesting in this prayer is, like the first prayer at the beginning, there's a string of pleas, but the question of how long has gone and the question of why has gone. And that's because you'll notice a subtle change. It's no longer about us or our enemies. Now it's about him. Now it's about you. And that's a great help as we head into the new year. If you're going to make one resolution, make this. Let me stop making everything about myself. Maybe one of the reasons that we struggle with unhappiness sometimes is we are so self-focused. But here, like the Lord's Prayer, the psalmist Asaph is now concerned with God's good name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. He's not like in verse 18. The enemy or foolish people have reviled your name. The Nabil is uh, the foolish people. Same word that's used in Psalm 14 verse 1. The fool says in his heart there is no God. As you know, I've discussed and debated many, many atheists. And I don't mean that they are fools in the sense of uh, unintelligent. Uh, I'm saying what the Bible says that there is a foolishness in thinking that we can live on this earth without God. It's just absolute folly. The foolish people have mocked your name. The enemy has mocked you. And then this, don't hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. The old versions had to those who confess you. But I love this idea of the dove because the dove is a term of affection. Song of Solomon 6 verse 9. My dove, my perfect one is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. And again, it's just this wonderful picture of God looking upon his people. Not forgetting us. 
not neglecting us, seeing what is happening, and still seeing us as his dove. Verse 20, the dark, the haunts of violence filling the dark places of the land. That's an image, and it's a graphic image of the Israelites fleeing and hiding in caves and so on, and yet being hunted down. And again, that plea is just simply for us, Lord, bring back your people for your glory, not for ours. I look at the church today and I, and, I, and I see how much we focus on ourselves and our own glory and trying to say we do this and we do that. And our concern should be with the glory of God and the reputation and the name of our Lord. So, where does this leave us? It's a man called Michael Wilcock who, writing about this, uses an, an analogy I like a lot. He said, with hindsight, we know that the Lord is going to vindicate his name. The terrible events of the 6th century BC will turn out not to be a failure on the part of his power and love, but something necessary to a much greater plan that the psalmist cannot yet see. So we have the advantage of coming to this psalm, looking at it from a much broader perspective and going, ah, yeah, but you know this, and you know this, and you know that. It's like... um, if you're watching uh, Lord of the Rings or something like that, if you've got the sense to watch something as good as Lord of the Rings, uh, and at the beginning you say, oh no, oh don't do this, oh no. But if you know the whole story and you know the whole book, well, we don't know the whole story, but in terms of this psalm, we can see from a much broader perspective. Wilcock goes on, they're like the movement of a piston in a steam locomotive. The engine is moving one direction, and the piston seen in close-up at one particular moment is moving in the other. It's going backwards. Why is it going backwards? Because it has to, otherwise the locomotive will not move forwards. That's the way it's designed. But if the psalmist's view is limited, his heart is true. His prayer will be answered, though in a manner far more complex, thorough, and slow than than he can at present imagine. Your prayers will be answered. But I suspect, in general, you will find that they are done so in a manner far more complex, thorough, and slow than you can at present imagine. The psalmist said, we, we see no signs, we have no word. Well, tonight, we do see signs, and we do have a word. God did have regard for his covenant, he still does. And that's what this is about, the bread and the wine. These are signs and symbols, but more than that, they are the Lord inviting us to sit at his table. Communion is God's reminder, is God's answer. You sit at the table of the king as part of his body, the church, and all the forces of hell cannot prevail against that church. Those who have communion with God will not be destroyed by the devil. That's a great assurance to us. Sinclair spoke this morning of God the Father and the idea of the homecoming. Um, One of the things I liked at this time of year as a student was going home, going home from Edinburgh to the Highlands. And no matter how much I enjoyed studying and I enjoyed being in Edinburgh and I enjoyed the freedom and everything else that went along with it, there was something about going home, getting off that train, being met by your parents, going in, getting your mum's cooking, 
sitting at the fire, your dad making you go out and work on the farm and you moaning, but just being really thankful that things were always as they'd been and that you were always welcome at home. If you have that experience, by the way, of growing up in a home which is stable and where you are loved, and even with all the problems and difficulties, be thankful for it because there are thousands and millions of people in our country today who do not have that experience and they're deprived of something that is just so great. But God, to me, we, every time we sit at the Lord's table, in fact, particularly the Lord's table, but every time we gather in worship and so on, it's like going home. It's, It's not this strange way out experience. It's just coming home. It's where, you know, your father says, sit at the table. You're welcome. And you realize he hasn't changed. And you realize there's security. And you realize there's warmth. And you realize that there's love. Whatever the storm's outside, inside, it, it is just a tremendous reassurance. And the Lord feeds us so that we can go out, so that we can encourage others to become part of that. So this psalm teaches us not to despair at what's going on in the world, not to rely on ourselves, but always, to, and not to listen to the lies of the devil who's saying, oh, well, God's done this and God's done that and he has rejected you. This psalm teaches us that God is king and that our, we cry out, Lord, for your glory, have regard for your covenant, defend the poor. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries. Amen. May God bless his word to us. We're going to sing uh, again before we take communion. Uh, We're going to sing the song, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Let's uh, stand and sing this before the communion. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.